chapter 1 in Haggai are printed on page 8 in your bulletins. Just allow me to read verses 1 through 15. It's a really special passage to me that has uh, really shaped me over the years. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time is not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. And this is God's word. If you've been with us the past week, we began a very short new series on the temple. And a temple, this, this structure, the concept of the temple, we don't have temples like that today. Uh, it seems like an abstract concept, but it really isn't. It's a very relevant concept to us today. In ancient times, the temple, we said, represented what? Access to God. A deep, personal experience of God in a way that shapes the center of your heart, shapes the core of your life. And that's why in the temple you worshipped, in the temple you taught, you, 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 get, you received teaching, in the temple you gave. The temple was designed to affect every dimension of your life. It was supposed to be the center of all of your motivations. That's what it represented. To be downtown in your heart. God was, be, was supposed to be at the core of your motivation, the core of everything you do. Now today, we live in a time where everybody wants an experience of God. Everybody wants the thrill of being near God, but nobody wants the call 
or the responsibility of being near God. But our relationship with God is designed to give us infinite joy, infinite thrill, and that requires infinite commitment, all of us. So we're going to learn three things today. One, the charge. Two, the curse. And three, the promise. The charge, the curse, the promise. Very simple. First, we're going to look at God's charge. Verse one, why the emphasis on names? Why the emphasis on these dates? And it's because King Darius existed. The timeline of this text, it fits the narrative of actual events of history, the, you know, leading to the completion of the, uh, of the temple in the Old Testament. Zerubbabel actually existed. Whenever he's mentioned, it's usually in the context with Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. These people were real. In other words, Haggai is writing facts. Haggai is teaching history. This is real. In a sense, it's news. What's the news? Verse 2, these people say that the time is not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains in ruins? Now, this is a prophetic passage. And when we, when we say it's a prophetic passage, well, in this passage, we're going to look at two things. One, it's relational. The prophecy is, is, is in regards to God's relationship with his people. And two, it's legal. First, we're going to look at the relationship aspect of this. The original temple, brief history lesson, the original temple was destroyed. The first temple, a grander temple, it was destroyed around 586 B.C. 586 B.C. God's people at that time, they were taken to Babylon they were exiled, and it wasn't until 538 B.C. that they were allowed to return. And when they returned, they were called to build a second temple. They were called to restore the temple. It was in pieces. It was in ruins. But the second temple wasn't completed until 516 B.C., around that time. So it took roughly 22 years for the people of God to return to their own land and rebuild the temple. Seventy years between the time of the first destruction of the temple and the second completion, the completion of the second temple. They were exiled for 70 years. Now, <clears throat> the temple, we said, represents access, the presence of God. But now the people are far from God. And you're probably saying, well, I was taught that God's everywhere. I mean, wasn't he with the people when they were exiled? And the answer is yes, of course. But we're not talking about the people being distant from God geographically. They were distant from him relationally. The temple was in ruins. And the people, when they returned, they placed priority on building their own homes. And so God was placed on the periphery of their lives. God was placed in the suburb of their lives when the temple of God represented that God is to be downtown in our lives, central in our lives. And so these people... Having placed God in the periphery of their lives, God in the suburb of their lives, they're now, once you start to do that, they start to ask themselves, is God really in my life? I mean, when I'm suffering, is God really present? Is, does, is God really active? Does he really care for me? And so they start to slow down in the building of the temple. And here God says, my house remains a ruin. In other words, what? Relationally, we're broken. Relationally, there's distance, so distant that I'm no longer a priority in your life. 
I'm no longer, you want me to be near. You want me to be near because it gives you warmth. It gives you security. It makes you feel good to be near. It gives you a sense of security and peace. You come to me when you're in need. And I'm present. I'm active. I'm there. You want the joy. You want the thrill of being near me. But you don't want the call of being near me. You don't want the responsibility of being near me. God's making a charge. That's what a prophecy was. But it's more than just about resolving relational brokenness in ancient times god he gave his people the law the ten commandments the mosaic law what are laws laws govern a nation you you identify a nation through its laws and every generation as you pass from one leader to another moses down to joshua and so on and so forth as that leader prepared to die They would call the elders together, and what would they do? They would recount the law of God. They would recount God's word. The covenant that was made, this love-binding, life-binding agreement between God and man. And they would say, take this to heart. Remember these words. Remember the law. It is your life. Now, if you violate the law today, there's a penalty. You might get a ticket. You might go to jail. Sometimes the penalty is death. In the Old Testament, there are generally three reasons why God would hold his people in violation of the law, the entire nation. One, they would forget the law, and so they would pervert the law, twist God's word, dismiss his word, disregard his word, dishonor his word. Or two, because they abandon the law, they become a wicked generation. There'll be a downward spiral into sin and wickedness as a generation, as a country. Thirdly, because of their wickedness, they would exploit the poor. They were harsh to the poor, unjust to the weak. And when God's people would violate the covenant, they would violate God's law, God would raise up a prosecuting attorney to charge the nation according to that law, according to the covenant that was broken, this law-binding, life-binding agreement. And so, What he's basically saying, what the prosecuting attorney says is, you have gone against your law, and to go against God's law is to go against your own identity, what you were designed to be. Think about this. If you go to a doctor today, and the doctor says, look, you were not designed to eat the way you eat. You were not designed to drink the way you drink. You were not designed to live the lifestyle that you're living. And if you keep living this way, no one's going to haul you to jail. Well, sometimes they might haul you to jail, but no one's going to haul you to jail overtly, up front. You might, not, uh, you might not get a ticket, but your soul, your body will start to corrode in a way that if you go too far, it becomes irreparable. Your life just kind of blows up, you see? That's what happens. And so this prosecuting attorney would come to the king, usually, or come to the nation, and they would say, you were going against your identity. You were going against your, uh, your, uh, the identity of this nation, the identity of the character of God. That's the purpose of the prophets. That's the purpose of Haggai. That's the context. And what's Haggai saying here? You have violated the law. But how? How did these people violate the law? Who was exploited? Where is the wickedness? Where is the injustice? And God says this, is it a time for you yourselves to live, to be living in paneled houses while this house, my house, remains in ruins? In other words, what is he saying? 
I have been exploited. I am homeless. I have been rendered bankrupt. I am in ruins. And you don't care. It is not a priority for you. When you were homeless, I cared for you. I was your shelter. When you were wandering in the desert, I cared for you. I literally fed you. I literally gave you water. I protected you. I gave you manna and quail and water. I healed you when you were sick. When you were exploited, when you were exiled, I brought you back. The creator of the universe who owns all of history. My fingerprints are everywhere in the cosmos and in history. All for you. And now I brought you back. And you are focused. Your priority is to build your own houses. To build your own paneled houses and leave me homeless. Verse 5, he says what? Give careful thought. I want you to think about this. I want you to examine this. Think about it. Consider it. Reflect right now about where you are right now. It's very important. That's the charge. Lots of emotion there. How do we know that? God mentions it two times in verses 4 and 9. My house is ruined. Two times he mentions it in verses 4 and 9. You are living in paneled houses. You are busy with your own house. Now think about it. More often than not, God is in the periphery of our lives. God is not central in our lives. Last week we learned about King David. David says what? Here I am living in a palace while my God is living in a tent. So what does he do? I'm going to build a temple. Why? Because I don't want God to be in the periphery of my people's lives. I don't want God to be in the periphery of my life. I want him near. I want him downtown. I want him core. I want him central. That's what he says. And when the leaders saw, when the leaders of Israel saw the king giving everything that he had, they started to give. And when they started to give what they had, the people saw that and they gave radically to endow that work. But here, what's going on? Centuries later, God says what? You are busy with your own house. You are busy building your own life. My house is in ruins. Our relationship is broken. And you think you can just get by. You think you can just build on your own, apart from me, and grow. These paneled houses, they're alluding either to something that the house needed or something that made it beautiful. Scholars, they, they debate this. They're not really sure what it is. It's ambiguous. It's meant to be. One thing we know is that no matter what, it was costly and it drew attention. It made the house more valuable. And basically what God is saying is you are spending tremendous amount of time meticulously building your life, building your home, building your family to make yourself feel more valuable, to make yourself feel more beautiful. People are willing to spend an increased amount of time and money on their homes as opposed to building and making God central in their lives. And so this increased priority in building their own sense of worth and value and significance above their own intimacy with God, something else has captivated your heart. That's essentially the charge. God is saying something else has captivated your heart. Something else has captivated your soul. And as a result, my love and my rule and my reign, which overwhelmed David, the passage we looked at last week, it just overwhelmed David at the end of his life. God's love, God's rule, his reign has now been displaced from the throne. And whenever you say, the Bible tells us, whenever you say that I need to build my life, 
I need something other than God to give me a sense of worth. I need something other than God. Yes, I love God, but this is what gives me significance. And you see that by people's anxieties. You see that in our depression, the things that make you sad, the things that make you dwell on your sadness, the things that make you anxious in life. Whenever you say that I need this, something other than God to give me a sense of worth or significance, then I feel valuable or then I feel beautiful. That thing has always been called an idol in the Bible. The Bible says, this is incredibly important because the Bible says you can grow up in the church, you can know the Bible, you can be very consistent in your church community, you can be a person of prayer, be known for your generosity, but what you really believe, what you really pursue, what you really desire, that that makes you feel like you are valuable or beautiful, whether it's intimacy with somebody else, whether it's that need to find meaning in your work, whether it's the desire or the pursuit of approval from other people, that's the thing that rules your life. That is your true control center. That is what is your center. And in the Bible, that's what the temple represented. That is your real temple. That's the thing that's really going to shape you. That's the thing that's really going to control you. And God says here, you have displaced me from my rightful place. And so I am homeless now. That is sin. It's not just an act. It's your motivation for doing anything. It goes far deeper than just any act. That's the charge. Now, what's the curse? The Bible always teaches that idols lead to ruin. And so when God's house is in ruins, when your relationship with God is broken, your center, your identity, this thing that you're, so, you're trying so desperately to build in your life is actually broken. You can't repair it on your own. That's what the Bible is basically saying. You can try to build it. You can work hard, but it's, you're working and working and working to build yourself when in actuality, you're actually destroying yourself. You become ruined. And there's no over penalty all the time. Again, you're not necessarily going to be punished for it. No one's going to haul you off to jail most of the time. The Bible says it's natural. Natural consequences because you are going against your design. When a planet breaks out of its orbit, when a moon breaks out of its orbit, what happens? It wreaks havoc everywhere. No one's accusing it of anything. No one's incredibly surprised when that happens. Why? Because it's natural. And so in verses 5 and 6, verses 10 and 11, right, if you notice this, God doesn't say, you render me homeless. Now it's payback. You're going to get poverty and you're going to get the drought. That's not what he says. In verse 5, he says, I want you to pay careful attention, he says. Give careful thought. Evaluate your life. Think about the decisions that you're making. Because you planted and there is no harvest. You eat and you're still hungry. You drink and you're still thirsty. You put on clothes. No matter, you're just feeding yourself and building yourself and you're never going to have enough. And you're desperate, he says. You put on clothes 
and yet you still feel naked. You earn wages. You put those wages, you put it in a purse only to see that the purse has holes in it. And so you want more and you crave more and you desire more. He says, think about your life. These people are, not, are, are only thinking about building their lives apart from God, thinking only about themselves. Even though God has been faithful, even though he has provided for them in every way, even though he's walked with them, even though God himself never rejected them, never forgotten them, God has always provided what was best for them. The people start to question, does God really have my best interest in mind? Is God really for me? Sin begins with distrust. All rebellion against God. We use the word rebellion because God is a king. All rebellion begins with distrust. And the moment you decide that God doesn't have what's best in mind for me, your life is already beginning. It's corrosion, the downward spiral. It's already beginning. Your life is already beginning to spin out of control. And a lot of times we don't even know that we're doing this. It's the subtleties. Much of this is subterranean. That's the point. The corrosion begins on the inside. That's the curse of sin. The curse of sin begins on the inside. What do we mean about the curse? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they had the presence of God. They had the love of God. They had access. God literally walked with them in the cool of the day. But when Satan tempted Eve, when Satan tempted Adam, he didn't just tempt them to just rebel against and just overtly against the law of God for, for its own sake. What he was tempting them of was to rebel against the goodness of God, to distrust him, to rebel against the goodness of God, to rebel against the presence of God, to not want God's presence in their life. So sin isn't just an act. God says in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, first book of the Bible, he basically tells Eve, I'm paraphrasing, don't eat fruit from that tree. Essentially, that's what he says. But the passage says this, when Eve looked at the fruit, Satan is tempting her, and she looks at the fruit, and she says, it's pleasing to the eye, and it looks useful. In other words, what? She's starting to question, why would God withhold something good from me? Is he really for me? Because when I look at it, it looks good. It looks useful. Why would God keep this from me? So when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, what they're really saying is, I know what's best for me. Now, we don't, if you've grown up in a church, you don't say that overtly, but you know that. Because people, your community will tell you time and time again, you shouldn't do this. This is going to take you into a bad place. This is not good for you. People who really know you are saying this, right? What do you say? People say, well, you know, God, this is something that doesn't honor God. You know that this is a gospel, this is not gospel thinking. You'll say, yeah, I know, but what are you saying? That but right there, I distrust God. I don't trust it right now. I know what's best for me. And the moment you decide that, that's sin. The moment you act on that, sure, that's the overt sin, but before there's an overt sin, there's a covert sin. Before there's a, 
a visible sin, there's an invisible sin. It's something that's much more central and core to our lives. And God says in Genesis chapter 3, because you did this, now everything has been cursed. Your work is cursed. The ground is cursed. Now you've opened the door for everything evil to enter in. Work is cursed. The ground is cursed. Your rest is cursed. Your family is cursed. And so here in verse 5, what's it telling you? Every time you sin, you are challenging whether or not God's presence is good. And that's why God says, you've displaced me. I'm homeless. I have no home. You live like you don't need God anymore. And you may not go to jail for it, but each time you do, you are taking yourself all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you are living the curse. Why? Because what you're saying is, I'm displacing God, and work is actually what I'm really going to pour my life, to, life into. That is what's going to give me meaning. That's what's going to give me value. That's what's going to give me significance. That's what's going to make me feel beautiful. And when you do that, Genesis chapter 3 says what? Work is cursed. You are going to labor, and you're going to be filled with anxiety, and you're going to be filled with depression, and anger, and jealousy, lots of suffering. You see that? You pour yourself into a significant other, somebody that you desperately, why? Because you desperately want intimacy. That's what you're going to pour your life into. You know what happens? You roll back to the curse. Because anytime you put that as priority above God himself, who is supposed to rule and reign, and he is a good God, and he's a faithful God, what happens? There's a rollback. The rollback is what? Family is cursed. There will be enmity between you and the woman, God says. There's a curse. Our solution is we want to stop the corrosion. We know there's some sort of brokenness. We sense it. We experience it. It's existential. It brings you tremendous brokenness and sadness. But our solution is we're going to feed it I'm just going to keep working harder. I need a different job. I need a different person. I need a different house. I need a different neighborhood. I need a different school. I need more credentials. Religion is not born out of an over-desire to be evil. Even your goodness, the ways that you want to be good to show people now I can be approved. Now I'm acceptable here. I'm doing all the right things. When you don't get it, what happens? There's jealousy, there's anger, there's betrayal, there's gossip, there's backtalk, backbiting, community brokenness, friendship brokenness, relational brokenness, family brokenness, work brokenness. Even your rest is tainted and will forever be tainted, he says. And so verse 5, yes, you work, but you'll never feel like you have enough. Yes, you eat. It's never going to satisfy you. Yes, you drink. You're never going to be quenched. You earn wages and you save and save and save, and it's never going to feel like enough. And even if you have enough, it will still not be sufficient to bring you the value and the sense of beauty that you so desired. Deep inside, we know that something has been broken in our DNA, spiritual DNA. We know something has been broken between us and God. You can't make enough to satisfy that. You can't have enough earthly love to satisfy that. That's what he's saying. Deep inside, we know we had it good at one point. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, we had the presence of God. We knew him intimately, and it was enough. But with the moment we chose to disobey God, we lost the presence, we lost the intimacy, and as a result, now nothing you have is enough. Never satisfied. And every time you choose to let something else take priority, over the intimacy of God that you have with God. And you're saying, ah, this is the thing that's going to be enough. 
the corrosion increases. Notice, in this passage, there's no overt sin. They're just building their homes. Nothing, no one's going to, no overt crime. God has been displaced from the rightful place on the throne of these people's hearts. And that is the root of all sin. No one may go to jail for this, but every decision you make, every place you're, in, you're investing in, your investment of time, your investment of resources, your investment of wealth, it leads to the corrosion of the soul if it's apart from God. And that leads the very things that you're trying to preserve, your security, your family, your health. It's going to infect every part of your life until one day the drought happens. And so you put your life into your house, you lose your house. You put your life into your career, you lose your job. You put your life into your children, any relationship you have, your children are going to leave you someday. I mean, it's not like they're not going to look back, but they're going to leave you. It's not going to be like what you have today. You're not going to have the presence and the access. You're not going to have the, the intimacy even that you have today. You put your life into your looks, your beauty. I'm going to tell you something right now because I'm way older than you, okay? Right now is the best you're ever going to look. Take a picture because it's the best you're ever going to look. Tomorrow it's going to get worse. Look at me. It gets a lot worse, okay? The corrosion of the soul eventually becomes over. Until one day, you're gonna, it's going to burst your life into the ultimate displacement where God is no longer going to be in your life at all. And you're finally going to get what you asked for. You're going to be away from God for all eternity. By the way, that's what hell is. Hell is just being apart from God for all eternity. What's the curse? The curse is the sweat and the labor and the toil, and the loss, and the jealousy, and the pride, and the gossip, and the anger, and the anxiety, and the depression. You see, and at the end, what happens? These people, they hear it. They hear the word of the Lord, verse 12, and they obeyed the voice of the Lord. Later in that same verse, the people feared the Lord. It's the same thing. Notice, there's no disaster. Nothing's happened yet. There's no over-catastrophe right now. They're not saying, oh my gosh, you're going to bring something on me? I'm going I'm I'm to, I'll change, I'll figure it out. That's not what, they, the result is just a result of hearing the word. Conviction had set in because the people are now coming close again. God has come near and the people are coming close again, close enough to hear. God is present. They sensed that presence and they responded. The presence shaped them. The presence shaped the people. This is an invitation that's what prophecies are. This is an invitation. It's a warning. It's a caution. Be careful. Think. Hear. Turn. He says, examine. Listen. Hear the word of God. Let it, don't just hear it. Let it shape you. If, you. if it's battling you on the inside, if you sense that battle, that, that means the word of God is shaping you. If right now you sit here and you say, wow, this is really hard for me. If you're struggling with that, that means the Word of God is getting closer. 
See, you got to let the Bible argue with you. Close enough to argue with you, fight with you. That's the only way you're going to start to roll back the corrosion and the curse. What's God's promise? And Haggai is a prosecution. But Haggai is also a pronouncement. It's news. Good news. Two times we see the dates and the times, the timestamp. And it's really there to remind us that this is real, this is history, this is news. But the first time we see this is in verses 1 to 3. And that's when the people, that's the pronouncement of, hey, you are, you are in sin. You have broken your relationship with me. You are seeking worth and you've abandoned ultimate worth. You are seeking beauty. You've abandoned ultimate beauty. You are seeking power. You've abandoned ultimate power. You are seeking wealth. You've abandoned ultimate wealth. But the second time, God says, mark it down. It's a promise. God says, I am with you. And he stirs up God's people to build the temple again. You got to notice this. He doesn't say, I am with you because you obeyed. In fact, the temple wasn't finished for another half a decade. Change is very slow. They slow down again. So the presence of God is not the result of their obedience. The obedience is the result of his presence. The presence of God is not the result of their obedience or their work. Their work, their building, their resuming to build the temple is the result of God's faithfulness, his promise. I am with you. God has been present from the beginning. He says, I haven't left. I am with you. When the people first rebelled against God, he was with them. There was a promise then too. When they were slaves in Egypt, God was with them. There was a promise of, promise of redemption. I will deliver you. When they were exiled in Babylon, all those years, 70 years, God said, I am with you. I am faithful. Grow there. Be prosperous there. When they were in their sin and when they were in their wandering, and now God has never rejected his people. God is present even when we're not looking for him, when we're not acknowledging him, when we're not even thankful for him, when we don't attribute everything that we have to him. Remember David last week? All this is by your hand. It belongs to you. When you're not acknowledging that, when you're not thankful for that, when you're not even looking for God, God says, I am with you. You have and you can have access. Look to the faithfulness of God. Look at the beauty of God. Look at the promise of God. He gave them a promise. He gave his people a promise, but he gave us so much more than a promise. In John chapter 1, the author writes, In the beginning was a word, and a word was with God, and a word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. That word dwelling is tabernacle, which is really, he made his temple among us. He templed among us. We couldn't build faithfully. You cannot build faithfully enough to God. And so God in his faithfulness, in his love, became flesh and templed himself among us. And yet in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, foxes have holes the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words, I'm homeless. 
In Haggai 1, God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go up the mountain. You're going to get wood. You're going to bring it down the mountain, and you're going to build my house, and I am with you. And this temple that they built, it took them 22 years to build this temple. It was a shabby version of the original temple, the glory of the original temple. Why do we get the promise? I mean, the, this temple itself, it was torn down 100 years later. So why did they get the promise? Why do we get the promise? It's because centuries later, Jesus took the wood, the cross, and he brought it up a mountain on Calvary to rebuild the eternal temple. Jesus brought the temple. Jesus built the temple because he is the temple. In the book of John, you see this theme throughout the book of John. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted up. In other words, he will be raised. He will be built. He's talking about the cross. That's what he's talking about. And mainly what he's saying here is, you know, in the gospel according to John, they say to Jesus, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it in three days? But the author writes, but the temple that he has spoken of was his body. Jesus Christ is the temple, the ultimate temple, where you can have a personal relationship with God. You can have ultimate access to God. Every other religion says what? You want access? you got to work. you got to labor. you got to sweat. You better follow the law. You have to obey. Then you might have access. You'll never know where you stand. But Jesus Christ says you can't earn. You can't complete. You can't finish. You have to receive it. It's a gift by sheer grace. By sheer grace. Place me at the center of your motivations, at the core of your life, and that's the only way that you'll be able to reverse the curse. It's the only way that you can remove the corrosion. If you do, it begins with access. You will have the only access that you need. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can give you true validation. Only Jesus can make you beautiful. Beautiful. Only he can array you with beauty, you see. Only he can make you truly worthy. Only he can make you beautiful. And this access, it's not earned on the basis of your work or your record or your merit, but on the basis of Jesus' work and his merit and his record. How do you get it? God says, you got to get the wood. That word wood is a peculiar word. It's eights in Hebrew. It's used about 320 times in the Old Testament. But it's not the only word for wood. It's a particular word that's often used in the context of judgment, the curse of God. You see, you go back to the Old Testament. Moses, he takes a staff and he, he basically uses that staff. And when he takes out that staff, the Nile River turns to blood. Why? Because that staff, that word comes up, right? It's judgment. Noah, he's told to build an ark. He's, used to, he's told to use a particular wood to build that ark. That word, eights, it's a certain word, right? It represents, the ark represented what? The judgment of God. If you're in it, there's salvation. If you're outside of it, you are judged. You will die. King David, King David, there's a conspiracy. His own son is conspiring to kill him. There's a civil war going on throughout Israel. And King David's son, Absalom, his glory is his hair, this beautiful hair, right? And it's an ironic twist because as he's riding on his horse, nobody knows who the conspirator is, but Absalom, his hair gets stuck in a tree. 
And so as his hair gets stuck in a tree and he falls, the people just go in there and they all kill him. How did they know? Why did they do that? Because Deuteronomy says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. That word, it's judgment. But in the New Testament, it can be translated to mean cross. The temple that the people built, it wasn't final. It wasn't meant to be final. Jesus Christ would carry the final tree of the curse, the judgment of God, and he endured the ultimate judgment, the ultimate curse, the ultimate corrosion of sin. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, he is the most obedient person that ever walked the earth. He and the Father are one, perfect union. That means he had access. But when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you are my temple. You are my center. You are the reason why I do anything and everything. But now I have been forsaken. I have lost my center. And so I desire you, though I hunger for you, though I thirst for you, I am not going to be satisfied. I will never be quenched. You are not with me. And that's why he can say today, I am with you. That's the promise. It's been etched in blood, friends. On the cross, Jesus is saying, my life has been thrown out of orbit, and so I am truly, and I am truly, truly homeless. I have been displaced. I am bankrupt. I am ruined. Why? Because even though God was Jesus' ultimate priority, the wrath of God for our sins as a penalty for our sins. He was penalized for our sins, and he died. The people, they, they couldn't build the temple. The temple had to be rebuilt through Jesus' brokenness. And we received the benefits of God's presence and the joy of the harvest, you see. Jesus endured the curse when he was on the cross, they said, what good can come from that? In other words, what, is he, what could he possibly reap from this? What harvest could there be? Jesus Christ on the cross hungered for God. He thirsted for his relationship with God. And yet, Philippians says, he emptied himself. He was empty. On the cross, Jesus Christ was crucified naked. And so you see him, you look at him groaning and toiling and bleeding and dying. He received the curse so that we could receive the promise. Jesus experienced the ultimate thirst, and he said, I thirst, so that we could be satisfied. Jesus Christ lost the presence of God so that we could experience intimacy and access to God forever. Jesus Christ was naked on the cross so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Jesus Christ labored and was broken and failed, in a sense, defeated, died, so that we can experience and enjoy the thrill of victory in Christ. We can rest in Christ. Guys, this puts an end to our working, an end to the striving, an end to the desperation, because Jesus Christ, his person and his work, even though the temple was destroyed, where is the temple now? We are the temple of God. God lives in us. That's eternal access. And because Jesus made God his priority, because he made us his priority, he can become our priority. You see that? That will loosen the reins and the rule of these other idols in our lives. Jesus Christ can become our worth. 
Jesus Christ, that's the validation you need. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the governor of the universe, died for you. That's the only validation that you need. You were that valuable. Died for his people. That's the only truth that can make you beautiful. That's the only truth that can make you worthy. To the degree that you believe that, you will abandon the work on your paneled homes. Will you consider? Will you evaluate? What are your, what are the homes? What is home for you? What are the paneled homes that give you worth and give you beauty apart from God? Will you let the worth of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, become your resting place? Dwell there, your forever home. God will dwell in you forever. Will you pray with me?